those who can do. Those who can't teach. You may have heard that phrase before. Those words were immortalized in George Bernard Shaw's play in 1905 called Man and Superman. The implication of this little jab is that people who couldn't really make it in their chosen field or profession fall back on teaching instead. And I think this phrase is really quite aggravating, especially for those who've devoted their lives to teaching. Because for one thing, teaching is, is really hard work. Um, and for another, without teachers, much knowledge, much important, crucial knowledge might simply be lost. You know, as a musician for my, almost my entire life, and as a music teacher for over a decade, I've seen firsthand how both uh, a love for music as well as skill in playing music can be passed down from a teacher to a student. And if there are no teachers, or if there's a lack of teachers to pass those kinds of skills on to the next generation, then the resulting gap is going to be felt in our schools, our churches, our communities. The truth is that every field, every profession, needs experts who are able to teach others and also who are, are willing to do so. And if, if no one's able to and no one's willing, then over the span of a generation or two, much of the specialized knowledge in that field may be, for all intents and purposes, lost to the world. So in the passage we're going to be studying this morning in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul wants to ensure that the most important body of knowledge, the most important message in all history, is not lost to the world. And his master plan is teachers. So we're going to be uh, turning to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It's on page 995 in our blue pew Bibles. But what we're going through right now, a series through this book, this letter that was written to uh, Timothy, a young pastor. He's, he's called Paul's son in the faith. And it contains Paul's final instructions for the church in a future uh, without, without Paul, without this great missionary this church-planting apostle, this, this man who wrote nearly half of our New Testament. And so in the opening chapter uh, of 2 Timothy, Paul charged Timothy not to be ashamed, but to guard the gospel. And now in this next chapter, he, he calls Timothy to the hard task of entrusting the gospel to future generations, to endure suffering in order to share this gospel and in all of the labor and all the struggle, all this work to, to, to hope ultimately in the faithfulness of Christ. So let's read um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel 
for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So as we walk through this, this passage and, and kind of um, look at the, the, the various sections uh, in these verses, I think the, the overarching idea, the overarching message, um, if I was going to summarize it when just uh, a simple phrase, it would be grace empowered work for the gospel is worth every sacrifice because Christ will never fail. So grace-empowered work for the gospel is worth every sacrifice because Christ will never fail. So as we we begin and just dig in a little bit to verses 1 through 7, the idea, um, the heading here would just be work hard to pass on the gospel. This is what, what Paul is saying to Timothy. Work hard to pass on the gospel. Look at just verse 1 and 2 again. Paul writes, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul urges Timothy to work hard by God's grace to entrust the gospel to other faithful teachers. We begin our Christian lives by grace alone. As it says in Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. But see, we don't merely begin by grace and then finish by grit and determination. We continue to depend on grace to empower our Christian life so that we can love and serve God and others. And and this is really one of the great mysteries or, or paradoxes of the Christian life, that over and over in passages such as 2 Timothy chapter 2, Uh, The biblical authors exhort believers to work hard, to to suffer, to spend and exert themselves for the Lord. And yet, at the same time, they teach that we can do nothing on our own. That God powerfully works in and through us. And that the strength comes from Him. And in fact, His strength is perfected and showcased, especially in our weakness. Uh, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15.10, another letter of Paul's, he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul urges Timothy to work, but it's through the strength of God's grace. And in these instructions to Timothy... This is for the purpose of the transmission of the gospel. Paul has in view the long-term growth and endurance of the church. Now, what's interesting and important to note is Paul's roadmap is not a succession of authority that's passed down through an unbroken line of apostles or popes or some other kind of authority figure. The centerpiece in Paul's plan, it's not Timothy, it's not any other future leaders or teachers Ultimately, it's just like uh, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, 
these words. He said, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. No, the centerpiece is not the servants. The centerpiece is the gospel itself. The apostles' teaching. What Paul calls in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, my gospel, this message that's been preserved for us in the New Testament and been passed on generation after generation to faithful pastors, elders, and entire congregations of God's church. And not only for them to guard this message, as, as Paul uh, charged Timothy to do in, in 2 Timothy 1.14, not only to guard it, but to faithfully teach it to the next generation in a compelling and relevant manner so that, so that people not only understand it and believe it, but are capable of explaining and teaching it to others. Now, at one level, Paul's instructions here are unique and, and targeted to his original audience, this Timothy, his young protege, who's responsible not only to lead the church that Paul planted, but to, to transition into this time when Paul and the other apostles are no longer around. But if we expand the circle a little, and in fact Paul's instructions do expand the circle, Timothy is going to teach others who are also able uh, to teach. This, these instructions could relate uh, uniquely to pastors and elders, those who have a special responsibility within the church for teaching and leading. They are at the forefront of this group of people who must be able to teach others also. Because, of course, in, in Paul's letters to Timothy, in particular, a requirement for serving as an elder is to be able to teach. That shows up in 1 Timothy 3.2 and also in 2 Timothy 2.24, later in this chapter. And so, elders, here is a challenge uh, for us from 2 Timothy how are each of us, as elders of South Canyon Baptist Church, strategically using our own God-given ability to teach for the purpose of entrusting the gospel message to other men and women who will also not only understand the gospel and embrace the gospel, but will likewise be able to teach others. This might be a, a man who, who could be qualified to serve as an elder himself one day, whether here or in a church plant or overseas. Perhaps it's a woman uh, who, who's a part of your life group or, or a life class that you teach, and, and it's, it's someone who has a heart for, for evangelism in her neighborhood or children's ministry, or maybe she's a writer or, or really passionate about leading Bible studies. How can we, as elders, personally invest and encourage members like these. Because as I said earlier, without this kind of investment and in raising up not only of leaders but teachers, then if that fails to happen, then the next generation is going to feel that absence. Now, even though elders and pastors play a critical role, the responsibility can't begin and end with them alone. There's a sense in which this charge... This project that Paul is laying out here applies to all disciples and includes all disciples. So, for instance, in, in the letter to the Galatians, also by Paul, he addresses the churches of Galatia, not just the elders. The whole church is responsible, in this case, 
for deserting the true gospel and turning to a different gospel. And Paul says to the churches, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So what that means is, if an elder of this church or even the whole team of elders were to abandon the gospel or or embrace a heresy, the members of this church would have the responsibility before God to remove those elders and install elders who have been entrusted with the true gospel of Christ and have the ability to teach it to others. This is really one of the reasons we talk so often here about meaningful membership at South Canyon, and we promote that as a good thing to pursue. As a member, you're not just simply along for the ride. You're not just coming and sitting in the pews to, to hear whoever might be preaching that week. No, members of South Canyon Baptist Church play a role in installing elders and pastors, in, in making uh, revisions to the statement of faith, and to, to making decisions each year on how the resources of the church are going to be stewarded for kingdom purposes. Because members have made a commitment both to the leaders of the church and to their fellow members And so they also share a responsibility both to protect the gospel as well as to proclaim it to the lost and to teach it. But circling back around to 2 Timothy, even if Paul primarily has pastors and elders in mind in verse 2 when when he says, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, uh, certainly in, in a passage like Ephesians 4.11, Paul teaches that, that shepherds or pastors and teachers are, are, are gifts, are roles that are meant to equip all of the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ. So, so what begins with pastors and elders has to advance to all members of the body so that all are doing the work of ministry. So it extends out to all disciples who are commissioned to make disciples. That could be a student uh, in, in middle school or high school. It could be church members who are, are uh, meeting together in life groups or meeting to study the Bible uh, with others in a triad. It could be those who are involved in teaching life classes or children's church or just parents with their own children. Remember, there is a, a diverse and multifaceted teaching role that's displayed really throughout the New Testament. Just as a few examples, of course, in in Titus 2.3, it says that older women are to teach uh, what is good and so train the younger women. In Hebrews 5.12, the writer of Hebrews rebukes his readers. He says, by this time, you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And then at the end of of Romans, in Romans 15.14, Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And then, of course, in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul lists different gifts, teachers alongside helpers and administrators are all gifts to the body, not so much connected with a particular office, but merely a gift um, to the body of Christ. So, So to teach this gospel, to entrust it to others who will also be able to teach. This is a project uh, that certainly elders, pastors are at the forefront, but it extends to the entire church. 
But interestingly, right on the heels of, of verse 2, with these instructions to Timothy, comes verses 3 through 6, where Paul gives us three metaphors. They all emphasize suffering, commitment, and hard work. So look again at verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, it's interesting that at least part of the toil and hardship Paul must have in view, considering the context, is the entrusting of the gospel to others that's described in verse 2. And that's because discipleship can be hard work. Uh, it can be challenging. People, I, I, hate, I hate to break this to you, but even Christians can be stubborn, can be messy. Uh, there's a lot of room for discouragement. And then, of course, in taking the gospel to unbelievers and seeking to do evangelism, there can be real resistance, there can be spiritual warfare, and at times there may be outright rejection or hostility. So all these things can be hard. And so Paul first uses the illustration of a soldier. Timothy must be willing to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And of course, a soldier who's enlisted has made a commitment to serve. In a sense, he, he does not belong to himself. His commanding officer can tell him to go here on this date, to travel here, and if he's tired or if he doesn't really want to and it's not convenient, if conditions are harsh or if there's danger involved, he still has to do it. This is what the centurion in Matthew 8 understood rightly about the authority of Christ as Lord. He said to Jesus, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So what does Paul mean then when he talks about not getting entangled in civilian pursuits in verse 4? Certainly, this doesn't mean that we neglect our obligations to family or to school or in the workplace. Of course, Paul elsewhere writes to Timothy that someone who doesn't provide for his own family, for his own household, is worse than an unbeliever. So that's not certainly what is meant here. These civilian pursuits Paul refers to, it, it may have a, a similar range of meaning to what we see in Hebrews 12.1. Remember when it talks about running the race and laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And these are two distinct things. On the one hand, there are sinful habits or activities which God's word clearly teaches must be forsaken, put to death. They have no place in our lives. But there are also weights, it says in Hebrews 12.1, or entanglements here that, that may not be sinful per se, but they distract us from our mission and our duty as, as soldiers who have enlisted to serve under Christ. These are, these are optional things in life. That it's not something we have an obligation to pursue or somehow uh, to fulfill. These are things that, that take our time and energy away from serving Christ our captain. And these are the things Paul says Timothy is not to get entangled in, especially if they hold us back in some particular way from Christ's mission. 
And so I don't think this is an area to be, to be legalistic or judgmental of, of, of others, certainly. But, but like Paul says here in verse 7, think over carefully and depend on the Lord to give understanding. So, so could there be excess time uh, that you're spending on entertainment or social media that while it's not sinful, it, it just it takes away from meaningful time that you could spend engaging with your family or with a Christian brother or sister to encourage or to disciple them or with an unbeliever that you have an opportunity to witness to? Or might there be recreational activities, which again are an important part of, of, a, of, of a healthy balance between work and, and re- relaxation? But, but could there be something that more and more it's conflicting with, with church on Sunday or it's conflicting with, with being able to participate in a Bible study or being able to have some, a family over for dinner? What one commentator describes this verse is, is, is talking about entanglements which, though they may be perfectly innocent in themselves, may hinder us from fighting Christ's battles. So Paul compares our discipleship to being a soldier. Then he uses the illustration of an athlete competing in games like the Olympics. Now, of course, in the games, the goal is to win, to wear the victor's crown, to work hard and give it your all so that you can win the prize. But you have to compete according to the rules. Otherwise, you'll be disqualified. Uh, Paul really expands on this metaphor. Uh, seemed to have been one of, one of his favorites. He expands on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he says, Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, I want to be clear here. Christians, we don't approach the law or any rules that, that, that are in God's word as, as a means of our justification. No one can be justified by works of the law. But through the grace of the gospel, God has given to believers his Holy Spirit. He's written his law upon our hearts, says in Jeremiah 31. The New Testament authors describe the law of Christ, the perfect law of liberty. And Christians submit to this law of Christ not in order to be saved, but because they are saved, because they've been born again, because they're new creations now they are able to, to begin to fulfill the law of what's summarized as love for God and love for neighbor, and to do that from the heart as, again, not as the grounds of salvation, but as evidence of their salvation. So an athlete must compete according to the rules in order to not be disqualified. And then finally, Paul gives the metaphor of a farmer who perseveres in his hard work and receives the reward of, of having a share of the harvest. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians 
3.8, Paul describes himself and other ministers of the gospel as merely servants who plant and who water in God's field. And then he says, each servant receives wages according to his labor. And of course, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul gives this principle of sowing and reaping. And he reminds the church in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And then after, after throwing out these three metaphors for Timothy, Paul concludes with this charge in verse 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So church, let's take these words in verse 7 to heart because it's, it's both necessary and it's right for us to use the minds that God gave us to think hard about what is written in Scripture and how we can apply it to our lives. And that certainly includes these, these metaphors here of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. How can you, in this afternoon or in the coming week, continue just to think and to mull over Paul's teaching? Is, is there one of these metaphors that is especially relevant to your life right now? Is there some civilian pursuit that you've become entangled in? Is there an area of your life that, that you are disobeying God's rule and you know it and you are recognizing, you're being convicted that this is not the path to a life of freedom and of fruitfulness for Christ? Or have you simply become weary in well-doing and you need to be encouraged that God is faithful and there will be a harvest Paul instructs us here to think carefully, to think intentionally on these things, to make the effort to do your part, but to know that, that God will meet you there. He will give you understanding in everything, not in the absence of any focused or disciplined thought, no, but in and through your disciplined and focused thought. Think on these things. So first... We considered how we are to work hard to pass on the gospel. Secondly, in verses 8 through 10, we see this picture of enduring hardship to spread the gospel. Endure hardship to spread the gospel. And verse 8, Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul reminds Timothy of the gospel. He reminds him of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And, and just in these two little simple phrases, risen from the dead, offspring of David, Jesus is Death and his resurrection and his reign are all reflected in this little summary. Um, the, the, the preacher and, and author, commentator, John Stott, he just really insightfully points out how in verse 8 here, in these two phrases, Paul reminds us both of Christ's humility and his glory, both his humanity and his divinity. And so he notes the phrase risen from the dead 
indicates that Christ died for our sins and was raised to prove the effectiveness of his sin-bearing sacrifice. And risen from the dead also implies his divinity, for he was powerfully shown to be God's son by his resurrection from the dead. And then Stock goes on to explain, and these, these little words, offspring of David, imply his humanity, for they speak of his earthly descent from David. And offspring of David indicates that he has established his kingdom as great David's greater son. So just in these two simple phrases, Paul brilliantly summarizes the gospel message. And this message is foundational. It's also unstoppable. It's worthy of our all. And Paul clearly communicates he is willing to suffer for it, even to the point of being chained as a criminal, even to the point that he knows his death is imminent. And he says he endures everything for the sake of the elect, in order that people might receive salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, it's worth noting that while Paul refers to the doctrine of election in verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, do you see that this is by no means a doctrine that causes Paul to passively sit back? He doesn't say, well, you know, if there are people God has chosen... And I don't have to play any part. God is going to save them. No, it's the doctrine of God's sovereign election that motivates Paul, giving him confidence that his mission will certainly succeed. And and there's really nowhere this is more clearly demonstrated than in Acts chapter 18 when when Paul is told by God, go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. See, Paul was motivated by God's unstoppable power working through the proclamation of the gospel. And he was willing to endure suffering because God's word cannot be bound even when God's servant is bound. God's word does not fail or return void. And really for suffering to be part and parcel of this Christian mission should not come as a surprise to us because it's from from Jesus' model we learn that the cross precedes the crown. Humility comes before exaltation and suffering comes before glory. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, uh, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you uh, for just for being here and for listening to all of this. I wonder, though, if anything uh, that Paul is teaching here in this passage is confusing or maybe even gives cause for offense. You know, as we were looking up in in verse 2 at Paul's instructions to Timothy, to entrust this gospel to other faithful Christians who can pass it on and teach others. Maybe to your ears that sounded like proselytizing and then teaching others to do the same. Perhaps that gave a bad impression from, from where you sit. And the only thing that I would ask you to consider is this. Most people don't really have a problem with trying to convert a person from a harmful or a hateful belief 
to one that's, that's loving and life-giving. And so I just wonder if you could, could consider the possibility that Paul, what he's actually doing here is laying out a blueprint for Timothy, for the church, for how a divine message of life and transformation, a message of love and grace, of hope and forgiveness, of reconciliation and peace, how this message could be protected against corruption, protected from, from selfish human beings who would seek to co-opt it for their own purposes. Setting a blueprint for how this message could be preserved for the good of future generations, those who would be trapped in darkness, whether that was superstition, whether it was addiction or other destructive behaviors, hate or abuse, could you consider the idea that the the pure message of the gospel is, in fact, a true and a beautiful word that people need to hear? Now, you you may not be confident of that right now, but I truly believe if you would only explore it further and come to God's word with an open mind, I believe God will meet you in that. Now, perhaps it's the, it's the very gospel message itself. Perhaps it's the notion that the people are sinners in need of salvation, that Jesus had to die for us, and that he's the only Savior. Maybe all of these things really clash with your worldview. And again, I would just ask you to consider this. Yes, it's true. The gospel requires a person to humble themselves, to, to recognize their sin and their desperate need But please hear me, Jesus is not simply another guru offering you salvation from your problems or just some new way to transform your thinking. He is the Savior who conquered death itself through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. He is the the just and righteous ruler over all creation, the ruler that every one of us longs for, if we're honest. There is no corruption in him. He will keep all of his promises. He will never fail. And one day, he's promised to return and make all things right. He's called the Prince of Peace. And there will be a renewed creation where all people and all creatures will live together in peace as they were created to do. So when Christ offers salvation, yes, he offers forgiveness and freedom from shame and guilt from sin, but also eternal glory and eternal life of reigning with him in his kingdom. There truly is no one else like him. And so my my challenge and my plea to you would just be to honestly explore his claims and then make an informed decision about what are you going to do with this Jesus. So In our passage this morning, we've seen the need to work hard to entrust the gospel to others and then to to suffer and to endure in order to, to spread that gospel. And finally, in point three, in our closing verses, we are to trust wholly in the Christ of the gospel. Trust wholly 
in the Christ of the gospel. Paul concludes by this trustworthy saying. It's perhaps a part of an early hymn. But in verses 11 through 13, he says, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So this trustworthy saying contains both promise and warning. So first, the first line says that those who have died with Christ will also live with him. And the way that this death is is placed in the past tense, if we have died with him, uh, it really echoes the wording um, that's, that's, that's found also in Romans 6, 8. In Romans 6, 8, Paul says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And in Romans 6, the context is talking about how believers identify with Christ's death in baptism. See, the Christian has died with Christ. Therefore, we're to consider ourselves dead to sin. And, and our sinful desires are to be put to death. We're to take up our cross and follow Jesus uh, in self-denial. Those who are united with Christ in his death will live with him eternally. And then the second line in this trustworthy saying is, is a parallel to the first. Those who endure in this life will reign with him forever. But then the third line kind of turns a corner and we come to the warning. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Jesus gives this exact warning in Matthew 10.33, where he tells his, his disciples, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the, the sober warning against uh, what's called apostasy, denying and forsaking our Lord without repentance or regret. And then we come to the fourth line, which we would expect to also be parallel with the third. Just as the first and second kind of lined up, we would think that line three and four would line up. We would expect it to say, and if we are faithless, he also will cease to be faithful to us. But no, there's a surprise, there's a twist. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. This means God's character is steadfast, unchanging. And I think there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, it would seem that denying Christ uh, is, is of a more severe degree. Uh, this, this final apostasy of, of falling away and deserting Christ, you know, we know from our New Testament that even Peter denied Christ and, and yet was restored by the Savior. This warning is for, or for one who permanently renounces the only Savior. There is no other way, there is no other salvation when the only Savior has been rejected and renounced. Uh, this is like the person in Hebrews chapter 10 who goes on sinning deliberately and it says tramples underfoot the Son of God. Now, to be faithless, on the other hand, would seem to involve the kind of struggle, uh, the kind of 
temporary failure to trust Christ. And I think all Christians, if they're honest, are at times faithless. But our God remains faithful. So our ultimate hope is in our faithful Savior who will always be true to his character. So the warning in verse 12 is a real warning. And for the person who trusts in Christ, for the person who belongs to Christ, the warning proves effective. The warning accomplishes its purpose, and it keeps the true Christian awake and alert. It protects them from denying their Lord. But the final word is not one of warning. No, the final word is one of faithfulness. Jesus never fails in his promises. And in John 27, Jesus promised, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the faithful God. And though you call us to a straight and narrow path to take up our cross and follow Christ, you call us to endure and to even to die with you. Yet our hope is not in our own strength. Our hope is not in our own work. Our hope ultimately is in the faithfulness of our Savior. He is the one who's conquered death. He is the one, the offspring of David, who, who rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. And he has promised that no one can be snatched out of his hand. So we pray that you would challenge us and send us out uh, with, with motivation uh, to, to just be devoted to serving uh, Christ our captain, our master. But at the same time that we would be encouraged, we would be comforted uh, that our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in Christ. And he has provided all that we need. We thank you for that. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.